Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault in the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster. I do these really indispensable things at a place called Freethink. I am currently in our Manhattan office, the only person in the building doing it for the children. And um, delighted to be here, joined by Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Beatham Magazine, and Michael Moynihan, who is back. He was away, I think, well, I guess you have been away, but you also bought your house. So the last time you weren't here, I think it was yes. you were just exhausted from doing all yes. of this manly yes. work in your new <laughs> home. How is that yeah, going, by the way? Well, I'm super cheap. How many stitches and... do you have? Um, I've, I, I have, like, nails have gone through my foot. I've like punched a <laughs> rabbit that I found in the Talking. yard. I mean, I'm already like in a contentious relationship with my neighbor who I believe is a white nationalist. I'm not sure, but I've already accused yeah. them of that. So it's, it's been, <laughs> it's been pretty, pretty aggressive, but no, I've mostly been on the road because I was out, uh -huh. um, yeah. I was out in Miami, which was, um, totally amazing when I was, uh, doing something for, um, you know, a, a, a film that we're making for the, uh, that will be released before the election. And this was on um, the uh, Latino vote in uh, Florida. And I did you have it. Latinx? No, no, no. Okay, vote. so I had this confirmed by everybody I talked to who was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And apparently, because I don't speak Spanish and we have l listeners who do who can confirm this, and they were like, it's impossible to pronounce in Spanish. <laughs> It's like, especially if you're Cuban, it's, it's Spanish well, isn't pro impossible. No, to I mean, in Spanish. literally everything is the funniest thing about. Um, I think I mentioned this the other night when we failed to record because of Camille's mic failures. But the fact that everybody definitely not to, a euphemism. No, no, that was that's no. just that's truly yeah. like. A but also, his penis couldn't get erect while we were talking, <laughs> which is unusual. I don't know why Very he insisted unusual. on that. I was like, why, you, yeah. why does that matter? He's like, trust me, it matters. And I was like, fine, I'm signing off. Just block I have a process. I have a process. Yeah. <laughs> trust the process. Trust the process. But no, I mean, I talked to people that were like, I was like, everything, I was like, when did you leave Cuba? And they would say in Spanish, like 1961, 1962. And then I realized that they didn't, literally didn't speak any English. And I was like, Wow, sixty years and nothing. Like, nope. <laughs> Not even like an interaction <laughs> with like a can that said like you know soda on it. They're like, I don't know what that word is. I was like, no. Uh, it was just so shocking, and it's so funny because they're all hyper Trump supporters. And the and and I'm like, God, you know, the Trump people would be like mad at you because they have to press one for English on the bank phone. Like, not like you know, it's like it's like <laughs> those are the people. But yeah, it was a really fascinating, a fascinating thing. But the one thing that I learned from this is, um, you know, there was a poll, two polls conducted uh, a couple weeks ago or last week about, um, you know, Trump's support amongst uh, Hispanics in Florida. And it was like 50 percent and Biden had 30 odd something. And that's more than the Cuban population. Right. And there's a huge Venezuelan yep. population there, too. And there was a second poll like, OK, let's see if it's and, and it tracked. Right. But then I realized when talking to people that the 
domestic politics of their home country is the domestic politics in America. So they vote entirely. You cannot talk to somebody about voting for Trump or, or Biden, who's Venezuelan, without hearing about Maduro. Or you can't talk about, you know, a Cuban person without hearing about what's going on in Cuba and Castroism. And the same thing is true with Nicaragua. And it's like all these refugees from communist countries um, are voting and they bring that stuff with them. So it's weird. It's interesting, too. I think uh, unlike uh, Southern California, people in Southern California let it go. Right? They don't. They don't um, <laughs> if they're from El Salvador, if they're from Nicaragua, if they're from Honduras, Guatemala, or whatever, it's not. Um, it's not imprinted on their politics. The they do uh, if they're from Cambodia and Vietnam, um, which tend to be really like hardcore patriotic, usually yeah. hardcore Republican. But from all Spanish-speaking countries, it's not the same. But uh, a huge uh, element of that is just simply that there's no Cuba. There's no. Yeah. Uh, thing that's like that but the the amazing thing about it is is that it's a, it's an incredible example of how stupid race politics has have, have made americans because we say the latino vote it's like they're like what are you talking about like there is the like the the kind of intramural racism amongst these like you know i mean remember when the caravan of people were coming from which trump called the caravan coming from um, El Salvador and coming from Honduras and um, Guatemala, and they were protested in Mexico. They were like, "Get the mm -hmm. hell out of our country!" In Tijuana, there's these huge protests. It's like, well, that's not surprising. It's like, no, no, because we think of Latinos all as this one, one you know, undifferentiated voting block, and it's they're radically different. And, you know, what do Cubans think about Mexicans versus Puerto Ricans versus Salvadorians? It's like it's really complicated. And those countries have very complicated <laughs> uh, histories. And then you bring it to America and you get a bunch of people in New York being like the Latin Latinx people. It's like, they're like, are you guys kidding? Like, no, this is, we're like wildly different on every number of politics, depending how Catholic they are, depending if they came from a country that was ruined by communism, if they, if, if they a country that was ruined by a sort of right-wing military dictatorship. It's all very, very different. But it's so funny to watch the difference because everyone says, oh, the younger generation in Cuba Cuban Americans is changing. Of course, that's true. But stand on the side of the road, as I did with a bunch of um, um, people, the uh, Cubans for Biden. And there, it, was, it was by like an, an on-ramp to a, to a um, highway. And all these people are driving onto it. And they're all Cuban. Like, and they're, they're Biden signs, like honk for Biden. <laughs> Literally, every third person drove by, slowed down and said, Communista and drove off. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, I don't know. That's kind of dumb. Biden, Biden's on a Congress, like, yeah, close enough, man. Because like, communista, communista, like screaming at them because Democrats represent, you know, um, not only like this sort of left to them, but like, you know, John F. Kennedy, the Bay of Pigs, not giving them air support when they needed it. Like all this stuff. They have this really complicated relationship with the Democratic Party. And they just like like Joe Biden, whatever you can say, is not a communist, <laughs> but, but they're, they're, they yell that. But I thought the most interesting thing was a woman who I talked to and hung out with who's a big Biden supporter, big progressive, um, absolutely lovely person, really funny, really smart, like third, second generation. Um, and she made a sign and I posted this on Instagram and the sign was like anti-racist, anti-fascist, anti-communist. Pro Biden. 
And they're like, they hmm. will literally like, like th- there's like a young, a young girl was telling me that she's in college and she was like, you know, super progressive. And she was like, I went into my friend's room. Uh, it was like a dorm room or something. And they had like communist propaganda posters, like a Che Guevara thing. And they were, and, and she like chewed them out. And so they had, it's like a weird kind of mix of, of these people that grow up with this idea and understanding what, who Che Guevara was to Cuba and understanding that it's not kitschy and funny to, to like, like communists. But at the same time, they're just progressive. It makes total sense. I mean, w- whether or not Castro, uh, you know, Fidel and Raul and the, the disaster of that revolution is a, a good or a bad guy should have no bearing on whether you think, you know, Roe versus Wade is a good idea. So there is some complexity to it, but you know there's a lot more Venezuelans who are voting. There are now a huge number of Venezuelans. There's a lot of Nicaraguans who left in the '80s because of of the Sandinistas, and Daniel Ortega is still in or back and still in power. And they have they're very very vocal. They have the and they all told me the same thing. And this, I'll finish on this. They all told me the same thing. Like it's really ridiculous for you to say like don't talk about stereotypes because stereotypes exist for a reason. We're Latin Americans. And we are fucking angry people. And like, they just like, when someone walks by, they just get these huge shouting matches about politics. It's like, it's amazing, amazing to watch. And the weirdest thing was like talking to people who like one guy who I thought was really charming. He was Colombian. He was talking about how he served in Vietnam and he had a very heavy accent. He was like, I love him in this country and the rest of it. And he's like, but the thing that we really have to do and what you and the media really have to get out there. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, the pedophile networks. <laughs> I was like, oh, wait, what? No. <laughs> he's like, he's like, you know, Google Bill Clinton in Haiti. And I'm like, okay. And Jeffrey Epstein. I was like, okay, you lost me. And there's like a serious QAnon thing going on too. Like I let, met a lot of people who were, if not QAnon supporters, certainly people who were, you know, on the fringes of the QAnon uh, movement, if it is such a thing, you can qualify it as a movement. One of the things that uh, Steve Kornacki taught us in his recent uh, guest appearance, the fifth column, was that, um, you know, the way that we that a lot of the media talks about the Trump administration, the election uh, is based on a kind of notion that the Trump administration is sort of marinating in white supremacy or appealing towards that. And that's the base. And this is the last sort of gasp of this dying culture. And yet the only real poll defections from Trump have come from white voters. <laughs> like, uh, Joe Biden has a Latino voter problem. Um, he might get less uh, uh, than Hillary Clinton did. Um, and it's not just a Cuban thing. It's sort of across the board. Also true or potentially true the black vote. But it is um, definitely uh, white uh, college educated voters. So I guess uh, you, Moynihan, uh, and uh, to a lesser degree, but the defection, the defection of my people, uh, you know, who are not as enthusiastic for Trump this time around um, uh, could uh, hurt him. And it's uh, it's fascinating, like the the way we just assume that it's a, just a, it's a last gasp of white supremacy. Yeah. Weirdly, it isn't as alienating to people who are not white. Let's set the table a little bit before we get into this, because there's there's a lot going on and we should at least. Paint. Yeah paint some picture of where we might go today. Not too long ago, I actually saw an AP story suggesting that in Louisville, officers were sort of being disallowed from taking vacation and beginning to mobilize or at least prepare for some sort of decision there. So that's a situation we should probably continue to watch. And maybe 
we'll talk about, um, especially since the, the administration recently lit, released a list of cities that were anarchic. Um, and it, there's a familiar list of cities is another thing that we should probably talk about and it's created a bit of controversy. Um, but beyond that, um, we're also 43 days from the election today, um, which is kind of insane. Uh, it's something we talked about at the end of the podcast that Steve Kornacki assured us that various media outlets were ready for this inevitability. Um, I've read Peggy Noonan's column uh, last week. And I am less certain that most states are ready for this, which could be a big issue. Um, so that may also be worth talking about. Um, and directly related to we the should election, get her, we should get her on the podcast. The conversation. For sure, we should. I, I want yeah. to. Can we? Can we figure that out? Um, we can. I, I have to say that that Matt and I, I, I know, um, used to do uh, Red Eye uh, with her, her very, very funny son, Will Ron. Um, who, yeah, done that too. CBS or something now. Yeah, oh, yeah, you did too. Uh, but also, I would just say that Peggy Noonan, Noonan is possibly one of the nicest people I've ever met. I've met her like twice, so and she's so funny and nice. And we Wonderful. should definitely have her. She's a great, great yeah. person. Yeah, maybe we do mom, mom and son. That'd be the first time we've ever done that on the podcast. Um, and but in addition to that, though, we we did did have kind of a preview of a preview of the debate, and we got it in two parts. Um, first. There were these kind of dueling town hall events that both President Trump and former Vice President Biden participated in. Um, but then after that, we got another interesting sort of point of comparison uh, when both of them were responding to the death of uh, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, the notorious RBG, as she's been called. Uh -huh. the, I had to check in my head. But I, I took the Adderall so much earlier today. But at any rate, um, but both of them <laughs> responded to this, claimed to have been responding to it with very short notice. Although Mr. Biden had about a, what seemed like a 52 hour speech that he gave um, as in a Crypt Keeper mask, uh, <laughs> seemed to be barely able to keep on his feet. Maybe fell asleep four or five times during the presentation. Mr. Trump, by comparison, gave 30 seconds of remarks. Um, there was a, a, a pregnant pause in there. There was a musical score that was playing. What was it? Um, it was like an Elton, Elton John, John song. Yeah. yeah. Tiny what, Dancer. What song was that? Sure. Tiny, Tiny Dancer. Dancer. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. the way it was scored, the only footage I've seen of that, it all has like this lens flare, Trump like walking up to the camera in this way. <laughs> and then the music just beginning as the president starts to talk <laughs> talk about the the the, 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 the oh former God. supreme court justice who just passed and he it's just this humanizing thing and he even manages to not completely screw it up although it sounds like matt that may not have been quite as spontaneous as uh as was yeah suggested. he'd heard before oh he had yeah. Do we know that? Now? Yeah. For, for, yeah are you suggesting that, that without evidence, Matt Welch? No, there's been reporting that uh, that he'd been briefed by people just before. I don't yeah. care. It was, yeah. it was still but, like but it's, nice. It, it, and if we're if we're like yeah. grasping in like year three and a half for a half normal it, moment exactly, from the president, it's exactly like, good right. luck to all of yeah. us. No, I mean it's an amazing thing of like how. My much... God, he sounded halfway normal. No, for I half know a it's like yeah. weird <laughs> how awful he is as a person. It's that like everyone was like that was amazing, and it's like 
Yeah, he just said that's really sad. <laughs> all all he did was say that's really sad. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, sad it's when sad. someone dies. It's like a, a normal <laughs> human reaction is say that's sad. I'll see you, I'll see you later. Wait, that's it? He's like, I'll see you later. Like, I gotta that's go. It? Listen to you're not gonna call her a name B side that he's playing right now. <laughs> I don't have some name for yeah. her. Like, you know. Yeah. Oh god. I would it's, I was gonna come up with my own Trump name, but I realized that was disrespectful. <laughs> yeah, anyway, yeah don't do I don't that. Do that. It's do the that. soft I'm, I'm bigotry of that. low expectations. Exactly. But it's also I mean, it's the high water mark of low expectations. It doesn't <laughs> yeah, take exactly. much. All you've gotta do, Mr. President, just go out there, don't be a fucking yeah. asshole, and then yeah. board the plane successfully. And people yes. We'll call yes. you presidential, sir. Yes. That's it. That's the job. Yeah. Um, and, he did, Van, and he did hit Van that Jones mark. Jones came on TV and was like, that was <laughs> the moment. That was the moment he became Donald president. Trump became my president. When he didn't, Brian Williams. When um, he didn't insult the woman who just passed away. <laughs> I'm very impressed but, by that. But the, debate, but the debate is next Tuesday and the election again, not too is far it? off. Um, wow. Yeah, Tuesday, Tuesday the 29th, I believe, is the first debate, right? Is that right? Am I making that up? No, that sounds right. That's already Tuesday. No, it's fine. You're right. Correct. I wonder. Chris Wallace, I believe, is hosting that one. Yes, Chris. Chris Wallace. Yeah. I wonder if this is going to have any effect. You know, debates. There's obviously a lot of debate about you know what effects debates have on the electorate, but this is kind of an interesting one because you have a guy who, by most accounts is unclear of what planet he's living on or whether or not he's actually running for president. And then a man who actually shines in these, in these fora, mostly because he's a complete asshole and not because he's a great debater. <laughs> like, it's just because he, like, he's going to walk behind Hillary Clinton, pull the mic up very tight to his lips, and he's like, because you'd be in jail. And, like, and then walk by, and like, that's a great debate. It's not the moment where Ronald Reagan has, you know, a scripted line about, you know, I'm not going to let my opponent's youth and inexperience, you know, the, the, the famous thing in yeah. 1984, mm-hmm. like that was, it seemed kind of like he was off the cuff, but clearly it was very scripted, but it was a great debate line. And, you know, you have these mo- moments in debates. None of that stuff matters anymore because you essentially have a guy who's, you know, tossed out all the rules and his success in debating is essentially like how funny his bits are in a way, mm-hmm. and how mean he is and how those things land by being like mean but not malicious because the malicious ones don't land as well as the ones that are just kind of sharp well, think about Think about comedy for a second, Michael. Um, and you're right to point this out, but comedy relies on surprise, as our friend yeah. Jimmy Fallon will, will point out. It's the trap door. Yeah. Like, you got to set up so that there's this unexpected hole in the floor that you fall through. And yeah. what can Donald Trump do that is unexpected at this point? You know, there is something nice about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Like (laughs) that was enough to like. That's how you trick him. Set off uh, Camille's uh, Adderall um, (laughs) in that way. But like that's that is the fundamental problem of Trump in this reelection is that he can't surprise us. And uh, the Cornac mentioned to us like a fundamental about this election is that 90 percent of the people who are going to vote made up their minds more than a year ago. I saw someone today. Uh, tweet out like on February 29th, right? This is, that is the day, if I'm not mistaken, that there was the first reported coronavirus death in the United States. Um, On that day, the polling spread was uh, 50 to 42 Biden against Trump. And now it's 51 to 43. Like all, think about all of the things that have happened between Mm -hmm. all of that. And 
it just hasn't shaken anybody because people have fundamentally made up their minds. There isn't a surprise. You don't have that element of like, wow, what would it be like if we actually elected a weirdo like this? Yeah. We know what happens when we elected a weirdo like this. We yeah. have this. Yeah, yeah. But it's and also it's, it's, it's interesting, yeah. Yeah. but it's not doesn't, novel anymore. Yeah. Doesn't the Ruth Bader Ginsburg circumstance kind of change the, the, the dynamics a little bit? I, I've at least seen uh, brave, courageous street brawlers tweeting that they will not permit true. The president to nominate someone to the Supreme Court. Otherwise, they will burn the country down. They will have Raise to do this. Yeah, yeah, that's, he's going to fucking do it. That's when right. I think of They'll like the to toughest nominate guy in the someone block, over his I dead think body. of Reza Aslan. Oh my God. And he walks out and I'm like, oh my God, does he have a, a baseball bat with nails coming out of it? I'm like, terrified. It's Reza Aslan. I mean, but seriously. Tight pants. But it, like, <laughs> God. I, yeah, exactly. But, but this, this, does, this, does seem, this does seem to have gotten some people animated online at a minimum. And, and look, a Supreme Court pick it's is genuinely Miami a big Yankees. deal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. They were called the Baseball Furies. That was what they were called. In, in, yeah. Uh, that movie. But a the Supreme Comforts. Yeah. A, a yeah. Supreme Court pick <laughs> is not a small... <laughs> A Supreme Court pick is no small deal. Um, this this obviously no. matters here, and this Especially is playing into the election. Well, this is playing into the election in a way that wasn't wasn't expected, obviously. Um, and there's the dynamic with respect to Republicans who had been an obstacle to President Obama when he wanted to nominate someone in the last year of his presidency, and they said, "No, no, no, we can't do that. We, we just yeah. absolutely cannot." And who, at this point, I think it's fair to say that this is hypocritical, that they have created essentially a new rule. A little bit. That says, yeah. well, no, we can do yeah. it this time because we're members of the same party. Although I, I believe they expressly said that they would not do it this time, this yeah, way. Lindsey Graham. the same circumstance came Dude, up. <laughs> the Lindsey Graham yeah. one is amazing. Lindsey Graham holds he's, I want he, like, you to looks hold me into to the this. camera and he's like, look at me. Never, ever allow me to get away with this. <laughs> Honest to goodness, mark my words, hold me to it. It wasn't even like, okay, let's parse this. And then he's like, yeah, whatever. That I was, I was fucking around. I actually don't that was before that. Brett Kavanaugh, man. Now I'm mad. But the thing so, about I mean, this, this is, is the like, question: funny, does it matter? Some... Does it matter at all? I mean, what? Ugh. So, here's the thing about that question, Camille: is that that question oftentimes is tethered to, is that going to affect the race? And I would like to invite us to remember that the question of mattering um, should also be about does the behavior of the people who take our money to uh, spend our money the way that they decide is best, does their shitty behavior, um, is that something worth commenting on regardless of whether those comments are going to move the needle on any election? And my answer mm -hmm. to that question is yes. It matters when somebody in power lies or absolutely contradicts themselves in a way that reveals that their fundamental nature is uh, crude will to power grubbing. And this is also true, by the way, of all of the people whose response to this was like Jeffrey fucking Tubins in The New Yorker. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys <laughs> saw this. Uh, but he, he had a, a fantastic uh, tweet uh, along the lines of like, uh, what was the thing that was right after uh, 
Trump got elected, someone's like, you know, straightforward from here. One, do this. Two, do that. And then three, it was like, you know, President Pelosi. It like, didn't make any sense uh, that everyone used to mock. <laughs> uh, Tubin was like, you know, one, uh, you know, declare D.C. and Puerto Rico their own states. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, two, and I don't have it in front of me, but like, uh, you know, uh, we obviously packed the court three mm-hmm. and just like just shredding norms right and left. And this is the only way to get rid of the. I think three is getting rid of the filibuster, right? Getting yes. rid of the filibuster. Yeah. Actually, that's number one yeah. uh, to, in order to enable the rest of it, um, mm-hmm. uh, which is astonishing. Right. So like the people who are happy to shred norms um, and to shred any kind of like uh, uh, intellectual consistencies that they might have had. Yes, it does matter because their behavior is shit and that is worthy of comment always yeah. including i mean camille if you want if i wanted to score some like uh anti-trump camille points or camille friendly anti-trump points better better said mm. uh okay. i don't know if you saw his uh his uh, uh interview on fox and friends this morning or, or uh, he's more listened to because he was phoning it in but uh you know, the poor bastards on Fox and Friends are like, Mr. President, you know, what are the qualities and uh, what's the name of the uh, the uh, uh, Florida, Florida judge, Moynihan, who's up like the number two or the number three? In oh, this? the uh, Cuban, uh, American. The Cuban, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And like already our conversation about this is more sophisticated than what Trump said. Trump yeah. said, oh, you know, she's a woman. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And she's, <laughs> yeah, she's yeah. a Hispanic. She's a she's lady. Trained. Yeah, and she, I, I once she's, had plantain she's chips. A, she's a wise she's Latina amazing. woman, actually. That's <laughs> and, exactly. she, and she's, she's from a wise Florida, Latina and, you know, woman. We, uh-huh. and we all know that we love Florida. So, yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so he's so yeah. totally transparently obvious. Does that matter to you, Camille? Um, it, maybe it matters a little bit. It doesn't matter at all to the election. I think, I think the observation that Supreme Court things uh, excite people who are already there, who are already in mm-hmm. the arena. I think that observation yeah. is largely true as is the one that we are mostly everyone who's already going to be excited about this thing already is, and they've made it their mind. There's not a lot of swing votes out there. So yes, it matters. No, it's not going to move the needle. I don't think uh, it's just a reminder that everyone is kind of locked in this spiral, this, this sort of yeah. mutual mirror image spiral of bad behavior. It's pan- panicky. Democrats have to be very careful, right? Because you, they have so many, like a series of layups. Of, of Republicans who actually precipitated this with Merrick Garland stuff in saying, well, in this situation, the, I mean, this, this hilarious, my favorite thing is that, you know, you, just the last year of the presidency, you have to let the American people decide. It's like, no, they did decide for four years. And that's part of the four years. So what, they have to decide. You have to wait now for them to like vote. It makes no sense. But they made this case, right? So they look silly. And then there's the people, of course, like Lindsey Graham that make a very kind of full-throated uh, defense of this stuff at the time and then are kind of bending uh, on it now, obviously, would expect them to do. So it's political hypocrisy, but typically the political hypocrisy is shrouded and masked and you have all these kind of, you know, out clauses and you kind of worm your way in this. But this is so blatant that Democrats have to really, really be careful if you're going to do the Jeffrey Tubin, the, the, you know, Reza Aslan, all these fucking people that are just acting like fools and saying, let's go back to FDR, you know, who is not being treated with the, the, the respect and deference he, he believes the New Deal program should be treated with are getting knocked down by the court. So let's pack the court. Pack doing the court. that, yeah. doing that is so crazy for a variety of reasons, but it actually makes you look 
like it's a continuation of you know what happened in 2016 where Hillary Clinton of course wins the popular vote and they're saying this is not this is a relic of the past it's only a relic of the past to have to have um a system where you can lose you can win the popular vote and actually lose the election because it's negatively affecting you where now it's the exact same thing. We're now we're taking this one step further and you keep doing this. I don't think voters are actually going to string all this stuff together, but you do it again and say, well, you know, we actually need 18 more justices on the court because we, we can't have, you know, this, this six to three conservative majority or, you know, five and a half to three and a half conservative majority, depending on, you know, what you think of particular justices. But that, is a reaction entirely to their political situation. That's it. It's not a principle thing because you haven't heard about it before. Mm-hmm. No one has been making the right. argument to pack the court in the past 15, 20 years. And we're going back to FDR, who I believe tried to pack the court in what, 1936, 35, 36, something around there. Yeah. And so all of a sudden you're doing this because you're losing the debate. And I heard a thing today mm-hmm. on NPR where, or it was, maybe it was NPR, where it was talking about, well, the, the the court will be very, very different to the American public, who's very liberal on certain social issues, particularly on abortion. The polling shows X, Y, and Z. Sure, yes. But that's the way it works. You can't, I mean, what, what is it? You, 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 dis, you dismember the court or you add justices because it doesn't line up in the exact way that opinion polling works? That's madness. And like, look, I think re- Republicans are saying that we're going to push this through after they made a very, very principled argument it, with the Garland nomination, um, I think it's you know, <laughs> ridiculous, embarrassing hypocrisy. But nail them on that. Don't say, okay, because there's nothing, nothing they're saying. You can accuse them of hypocrisy, for sure, which I would do 10 times over. But you can't accuse them of doing something illegal or doing something that's actually, you know, is it immoral? That's a value judgment. I don't know. But is it illegal? No, it's not. No, it, it's the not president all. gets to appoint yes. someone. The and Senate gets saying, to decide. You have, you have right. to do what Ruth Bader Ginsburg said. Her dying wish. She doesn't own the fucking seat. I'm sorry. Like, she's like, <laughs> her, if her dying wish was to have a fucking unicorn run across my lawn, I'm not going to say, like, guys, find the, the horse with the pointed thing and it has rainbows. Like, you cannot say, look, I, I, like, I'm sympathetic. Like, I get what she's saying. And, you know, I, I think it's so, a terrible tra- tragedy that, she, that she's done. Yes, 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 and yes. But it doesn't mean well, you get to kind of change the rules because we like her and we have T-shirts and we can comp- compare her to the nor- Notorious B.I.G. And everybody in Brooklyn has, like, <laughs> tattoos of her on their fucking neck, despite the fact that they can't yeah. name one thing that she's done <laughs> in the court. They don't know. She's great. She's amazing. But, like, what did she do? I don't know. She's fucking amazing, she but danced like, that yeah, one time well, on SNL. It's, it's yeah. Cool. Well, it's That's, sad when any when any family loses someone. Although she lived a full life, she is lionized and was, she actually does. Uh, by the way, seem like, like a, seem like a pretty highest, awesome person. Yeah, the highest absolutely. levels yeah. of power. Yeah, but but I but I wonder. I mean, Matt, you were talking about you know the norms being eroded eroded here and the the degree to which this matters, and I'm I'm inclined to agree with you, but I'm I'm wondering about what has been I think appropriately characterized as hypocrisy all around here um and one might suggest and perhaps i'm asking the question then um, whether or not the republicans or the democrats are sort of more responsible for hypocrisy here i suppose the republicans could have stood on principle 
and shot themselves in the face and not done <laughs> what they are totally legally entitled to do by not allowing the president to appoint a Supreme Court justice in his last year here. Um, and really in the, in the last like 50 days before an election. Um, but, you know, Democrats who are outraged that they won't do precisely that, um, who had previously suggested it's totally fine to be able to do these appointments. We should be able to do it now. We want to do this. Including, including like, Joe it, Biden. And Joe Biden. Exactly. So it's just, there's hypocrisy all around. It abounds. I, I would say that, sure, it matters. It says something about the the culture, but is is some is someone worse than someone else here? Is is the fact that there is abundant hypocrisy better or worse than than there just being sort of this this hypocrisy on one side that's generating legitimate outrage? Um, the way that I would look at this is not to like work towards that question, partly because that's the question everybody wants all the time in every context for every question. And I'm mm -hmm. sick of it. And you people can fuck off. Um, uh, thank you. Uh, really? Uh, not mm -hmm. you. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm saying th these people. Yeah. You, yeah. You've already said you're not one of those people. Those people. Um, that's true. I'm not. You, you, I'm not. you people. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's uh, right. No, but like, uh, I, I think it's actually worthwhile to to think this through. Did you want, did you think it was proper or not for the Senate to take up the Merrick Garland confirmation and to vote yes or no? Or do you think that it was proper for them to say, we are not going to vote, we're going to sit on our hands? I said at the time, and I've said on this podcast and elsewhere, that that was improper um, because the Senate should do its damn job. Congress in general should do its job and does not. That is the fundamental reality of Congress. Congress should pass 14 spending bills per year as dictated by the 1974 Congressional Budget, whatever the fuck act. Um, and they never do. The last time they did it was in 1996. They don't do this. Instead, they legislate by a series of continuing resolutions and omnibus last minute up or down spending bills uh, that no one sees except for maybe the leaders of the party or the leaders of the, the chambers themselves and the president. That's it. It's like five people see any of this stuff. Nobody knows what's in it. This is wrong. And so my feeling at the time was, all right, if you really honestly believe, as Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, everyone else said in 19 or 2016, that it's bad to do this, go ahead and attach your name to a vote. Put Merrick Garland through, right? Like, Neil Gorsuch is a much better justice for my money than Merrick Garland. I don't, I'm not impressed with Merrick Garland about the stuff that I care about. He is uh, aggressively or like uh, uh, disproportionately pro government in policing cases and fourth amendment cases and things like that in ways that Gorsuch is actually more skeptical of government claims of power. I like that. I think Gorsuch is better, but like, do you want Congress to do its job? They could have taken it up, done the hearings, made the vote, voted no, attached their names to that vote, right? Um, Congress is always trying to find ways to evade attaching their names to a vote. I find that cowardly and a, um, a, a leaking of the legislative uh, kind of prerogative. So I think that's true now too. If Donald Trump wants to nominate somebody on Friday or Saturday, as he has said, um, mm -hmm. and Friday, go through the process. Uh, from what I understand, um, 
because I read it on Twitter, it must be true. There's about eight <laughs> legislative days left, right? The last nine justices to be approved at the Supreme Court took, depending on your measurement, between around 50 days and 107 days, 50 being Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Some measures have that at 45 um, and 107 being Clarence Thomas, which is a bit contentious as some of us might remember. Um, so like uh, we have, as you mentioned, Camille, what, 43 days as we're talking until the election. So mm -hmm. the chances of this happening um, in any kind of uh, deliberative way uh, between now and the election are very small. Um, they, they might try to expedite it, but that is also their job. So they should go through the process, I believe, of doing their job and seeing what happens and attaching their names to votes. That's what you do. Um, they should have done that in 2016. They should do that now. I think um, arriving at your own personal conclusion, which might be different on that, is a more worthwhile exercise than playing who's the biggest hypocrite card, because that's all people want to do. We had a, um, a blog post uh, of, uh, of uh, another uh, podcast that I'm uh, affiliated with sometimes, and we share some listeners. <laughs> Um, and it was like, basically, everybody's a hypocrite. And it's amazing to watch the reaction to it. It's like, oh, come on. How dare you say everybody's a hypocrite? Because it's obvious that you know, Team X is a hypocrite. It's like, yeah. actually, everybody's a hypocrite. Name the person, name the legislator, name the person in power who's not a hypocrite on this. Uh, we would be better off uh, figuring out how we can ourselves in our own tiny way not be a hypocrite um, and then kind of wandering out in the world and assigning d blame out. Does it, does it actually make us think in some way that if we have any questions about the kind of inclinations, political inclinations, political direction of the media, that the reaction specifically to the Lindsey Graham stuff, which I understand, because Lindsey Graham is, is inviting it by saying, please hold me to account if I ever yeah. you know, back away from this, um, that... Obviously, it's obviously true that it's going to happen on both sides, right? It's obviously true there are people saying, "Let like you have to do this now, you have to push this through right now." And where are those people? So we should actually take those people that defended the Garland. Uh, it's like let's vote on this right now, and like you know, run them through the ringer. And those would be all Democrats too. But the, which includes Joe, which Biden, exactly the nominee of the party, it, it, precisely it includes Joe Biden, and that's like you're not hearing a ton about that. The other thing, and I think that, you know, we'll get Damon Root on soon, particularly because Damon, beyond being like one of the nicest men that I know, is um, absolutely painfully brilliant on all Supreme Court stuff. And apparently he's writing a book, Matt says, about Frederick Douglass. It's already been printed. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm so happy about that. But I would love to talk to Damon about this. Because here's the thing that bugs me, is that when you have the, you know, it's six to three, and I previously said, you know, five and a half, three and a half. And the reason I said that, why? is because of John Roberts. And if we look at Republicans, this does not happen with Democrats. It only happens with Republicans, where they appoint people that displease conservatives every friggin' time. You, like, so let, let, go back and go through the list. Harry Blackman, right? Supposed to be conservative. He's sort of, John Paul Stevens, big conservative. No, not so much. Sandra Day O'Connor. Voted in between <laughs> Liberal Rock, Reagan was like Anthony Kennedy, same thing, right? David Souter. I mean, remember David Souter was important by a Republican, right? John Roberts. All of these people, if you were to listen to the kind of rhetoric of the day, 
was yet another conservative voice that was going to bring us back into the Stone Age, and all of whom, because they're judges and because they're smart people and because they're not ideologues in the way that somebody who was actually disallowed from being on the court like Robert Bork was, they, you know, voted their conscience and sometimes that vacillated between things that would popularly be called conservative and liberal. So I don't like who knows who Donald Trump picks. And it's always presumed that that person that he picks, and he's already, you know, kind of struck out on this once by a lot of people, uh, ideas, because, you know, one of these two justices hasn't been as conservative like people. So what happens, like, if he picks a person who's, you know, the, you know, Cuban Latina, who he basically knows that she's from Florida <laughs> and spoke <laughs> Spanish at one point in her life. That's the extent of his knowledge of her judicial philosophy. But it, it's just as a, as a sort of important note that there's historical precedent. I, I named six justices in the past 50 years that did not vote the way people who nominated them expected them to. So the idea that this is going to immediately, if Donald Trump has his third pick, is going to, you know, you know, send us into the dark age. Tell me that's true. It doesn't necessarily mean it's, it, it, it's true. It's, it, it doesn't mean it's going to happen. You know, it doesn't mean that, that the court is going to be, you know, sort of, you know, conservative in this knuckle dragging way that people associate with Donald Trump. Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? Because. It, and the reason I point that out is because if this happens, if it goes through constitutionally, legally, you know, morally, again, is a different story. If it happens, you have a bunch of idiot journalists, always journalists, living in their bubble, not getting outside of it, saying, we're going to burn it down. Let's go burn it down. Well, Reza, if you are out there with a can of petrol in your hand, making Molotov cocktails, I will absolutely come and defend you when you're brought into court. because. For, for, you know, inciting a riot and burning down a building because these people talk nonsense and they say, this is what we want people to do. Get in the streets, burn it down. You know, this is the process, guys. I'm sorry that these people are hypocrites. I don't like that they're hypocrites myself, but it doesn't mean what they're doing is wrong or, or, or illegal. And so when it does happen, here's a, it, you know, has a high pro probability that it will. Don't also think that it's going to be some sort of Donald Trump clone that's going to be sitting on the bench. I don't suspect that that will be the case. One of the ways to think about that, especially among our listeners who are less conservative or less libertarian, yeah. you know, quick note, those two things aren't the same, They're not. Um, <laughs> is that uh, Neil Gorsuch um, has uh, formed an alliance on many criminal justice issues with Sonia Sotomayor. Absolutely. Um, that's uh, when I said one of the two, I was talking about Gorsuch. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, in ways that Merrick Garland would not have. Absolutely. Um, like from a super progressive criminal justice point of view, Gorsuch is instrumentally better than Merrick Garland would have been. Um, people have a hard time wrapping their brain around that and they shouldn't because it's, uh, it's a more interesting and varied story out there than the usual stupid way that people write and talk about the Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, the one the one thing that I'd say is I, I broadly agree. I mean, again, the president has the right to nominate who he wants. The Senate's responsibility is to, you know, advise and consent. Uh, but I mean, I, I suppose I'm less concerned, Matt, if they use sort of procedural gimmickry 
to get around to pointing someone. Um, they can be punished at the ballot box if they do yeah. sort of a sufficiently bad job, and that's kind of part of the process as well. And and I just don't I don't mind that much if that's kind of the way they decide to play ball in this particular case. I mean, one of the things that that seems really important here is, um, and maybe this is a bit of a transition to to some of the themes that Peggy Noonan wrote about in her piece, um, is we already have, you know, this really fraught election cycle. We've talked a lot uh, in recent weeks and months about just how, you know, delicate a place the country is, what a delicate place the country is in in general. Um, And the fact that we've, you know, there are people threatening to, to perform acts of violence if, in fact, this person is totally legally uh, nominated for the Supreme Court and then approved and added to the Supreme Court, again, totally legal. Um, but it's not as though there haven't already been acts of violence and there aren't already serious protests taking place. The protests started again on Friday, you know, in response to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing and the expectation that someone might get nominated to the court. Um, so, you know, we, we already find ourselves in this circumstance and going into November, we know that on election night, it is a virtual certainty. No, it is a guarantee that we will not know who won the race. Um, the absentee or, or um, you know, mail-in voting is happening already. Um, it's going to be a substantial uh, part of the overall vote tally and there is going to be a protracted period during which we don't know who won this election and you've got both candidates for president um from the two major parties suggesting that the other guy is trying to steal the race explicitly saying so repeatedly um and making it pretty clear um and some of their you know spokespersons or supporters prominent supporters are out saying that they shouldn't concede the race, um, it's going to get like really intense. And Peggy Noonan's piece really highlights the degree to which there's just a great deal of uncertainty about how things will proceed at the state level, that there are likely to be court challenges in a number of places because you've got all these various rules about which ballots you can count when, depending upon when they're mailed and when they're received and whether or not they're postmarked. Um, and it paints a picture of a circumstance where you don't just have hanging chads in Florida and one election race that is not really conceded in certain respects. I mean, there's still Democrats who don't really believe George W. Bush won. Um, and it's certainly the case that there are plenty of Democrats who don't believe that Trump won fair and square. I mean, we're headed into some very uncertain territory, no matter what. Um, and it, it seems very difficult for me to imagine, you know, despite the assurances that we got uh, last dispatch from Steve, that we're going to be able to navigate this in a way that doesn't greatly inflame tensions and risk some pretty sort of disturbing um, and uncertain times uh, in between November and January. I mean, what do you what do you to- guys make of this? I wanted to hear Moynihan about this, but I want to just like put two shivs um, uh, in your ribs uh, before we get uh, much further with it. Which I don't, is I don't know the if beginning... I need that. Shiv the ribs. <laughs> the beginning of your statement contradicts the rest of it in that like, okay. oh, I don't really care if they're going to use this 
you know, BS excuse to do this because it's going to work itself out in the ballot box. And then it's like, <laughs> oh my God, we can't agree in the ballot box. There's going to be extended woe and, and terror uh, and, 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 and trouble. Um, Is there I a connection between say, those two things? Yes, because if you're okay. relying on the ballot box to sort things out um, and at the same time you're bemoaning the uh, lack of faith and the heightened kind of um, a brutal competition over the results of what happens at that ballot box, that maybe we should be relying on other mechanisms besides counting up contested ballots to kind of govern or, or influence our political outcomes, in which case, to cut to the quick of it, um, crude will to power brazenly hypocritical politics on their own, I think, are worthy of being called out in the moment for what they are, and that it's hmm. an ugly trend. And it's an ugly trend that is absolutely on the rise on mm -hmm. both left and right. I don't know who's doing it more. I would suspect slightly maybe the right just because I can see them in power in a way where the people on the left who are making these fantasies frequently are not the people who are the most in power in the Democratic Party. Regardless, those crude gestures towards will to power politics, and I don't even care for a half a second uh, about um, uh, temperament or, or, or measured approaches or intellectual consistency, that's the problem. That is, mm -hmm. that is a very significant problem. And, and those problems play out the most uh, precisely in moments of high tensions at elections, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone will reverse their position. My uh, uh, thing that I watched that had a lot of influence on me was at the Ralph Nader uh, election party in Washington, D.C. in 2000. I sat there next to the numbers wizard of the Nader campaign who had um, arranged this whole kind of intellectual uh, formula of if there's X votes in Florida that are like this, that come out like this, then obviously Nader isn't the spoiler. Well, <laughs> the, the votes actually came in and like, whoa, better change the formula, right? So like you, I saw it in real time. He just did it right next to me. We, he didn't like me calling him out in public about this. So we, I won't mention who that was. But, um, <laughs> but like I saw what happens when people are like, crap, you know, we've got to do this because of power right now. Um, that in itself is is a is a main problem. The other thing I'll say about Kornacki, and then I want to hear Moynihan about the actual meat of the question, which is very interesting, and I don't know what the answer is um, regarding of how screwed we're going to be after November. But I think mm -hmm. what Kornacki was was referring to, um, Camille, was the way that the media is going to write about it in real time. It's not that the the, the, the right. republic is going to be great. It's going mm -hmm. to be um, he had a sense of more confidence than we should normally expect from the media that they will be responsible about saying what states have been won and which ones haven't and they, that they've that they've war gamed this out i think there's reason for skepticism about that claim for mm -hmm. sure but i don't think that his claim was about the republic itself having kind of certainty and quietude no i think all of them. no and i think you're i think you're right about steve's claim um, and those are, in fact, two different things. Um, I'd also say that I don't know that there wasn't a lot of internal consistence, inconsistency um, in the in the remarks that I opened with, with my very long, you know, almost question. Um, 
mostly because I think it's the circumstance that actually makes this particular vote so fraught. I mean, it, it's certainly the case that there was all that things were already pretty frothy um, in our politics, but it's a it's a pandemic. It's everyone trying to um, do these like mail in ballots these this year versus actually showing up to the polls and a great deal of uncertainty about whether or not it's safe to show up at the polls, although that seems to break down pretty evenly upon uh, uh, across party lines. Um, and just so higher turnout than we've ever the, experienced, too. It's yeah. going to be a huge like logistical it's, problem. It's going to be it's going to be difficult. And and I'd, I'd also say that, I mean, from my own standpoint, I, the, the, the thing about the norms and the will to power I suppose there's a sense, my own sense about this is you can't actually avoid the sort of nasty will to power business. I'm not sure what the alternative to it is. I don't think norms on their own are enough to protect you in the long run. I think only limiting the power that's available for these people to fight over is is probably the only thing that you can actually hope to do. Like any other sort of stasis that you're able to maintain for like some period of time is is like it's just that it's fleeting and and temporary and you'll find yourself in a circumstance where it's it's a food fight again pretty quickly which is why it's absolutely essential that you actually don't allow these people to accrue too much too much authority let's hear a Moynihan. um i think i should probably preface it by saying i'm legitimately drunk now um, I started <laughs> That's good. Just six or seven drinks before shit. we started um, recording. Yeah. But um, well, then so wine there is with, truth. Tell us, tell us what you honestly think. Did with, you stock with, up? With that caveat in mind. Um, oh my God. No, come on. It's just, you know, it's who I am right now. Um, I will say this. A few things. <laughs> <laughs> a few things. Right now. Uh, right now. Uh, COVID allows this to be, I mean, everybody wants in every election to cast doubt on you know, the process, whether it's the totally ridiculous and, you know, it should, we should meet this with incredulity when Hillary Clinton says, I didn't run a bet. It was Russian. It was trolls. It was this, that, and the other, which um, when you look into it, I mean, the basic sort of, you know, common sense tells you that's stupid too, but when you look into it is amounts to basically nothing, right? So now in COVID times, when you actually have president on one end, who starts off in him in isolation saying that this whole thing is going to be dodgy, don't trust the results. Okay, Democrats have a a president questioning this. You have a weird situation with mail-in ballots, et cetera. But then, of course, their own party, including Hillary Clinton, especially Hillary Clinton, saying, don't trust the results too, right? So we have it on both sides. The thing that I notice about this election is that this, this is America's real Latin American election. This feels like a hmm. Latin American election, right? And so when I'm talking to people who, this is after three days of idiotic coverage of like, I cannot believe in South Florida, or in Florida in general, but in South Florida, Hispanics, Latinos, Latinx, whatever the hell people are saying now, are trending towards Trump. Can you believe this is the stuff that Donald Trump says and these people are on, are on his side, seemingly on his side? Well, no, it doesn't surprise me at all. Because if you've followed Latin American politics, you realize that Donald Trump isn't Hitler, isn't Stalin, isn't a fascist. He's a Cadillo. Why are, he's a why are you defending American. him? 
Well, hold on. I'm not defending him. I mean, but, he, but he talks like a Cadillo. He is a Latin American strongman. So when everyone's shocked, like, well, he called Mexican mm. revolution. He called it. No, but this is how every Latin American election and every Latin American candidate conducts themselves. This is how they mm. talk. This is the language of a Latin American election. So to me, when I see this, like, you know, we can't trust the vote, et cetera, try to find a Venezuelan election, you know, which they have elections, they're not to be trusted, or, you know, Christina Kirshner, like, go across South America, in particular, Rafael Correa, Lena Moreno in Ecuador. The, every election, the legitimacy of it is questioned, right? So the people who are now trending towards Trump, particularly in, in Florida, and this is a kind of an interesting thing with the Latino, uh, particularly the guy that is considered to be racist primarily because of that, because of the Muslim ban, number one, and number two, because of Mexicans, and rapists, et cetera, build the wall. None of this, like the, the, the general impression doesn't have to do with anything he said specifically about black people, for instance, considering that's a big conversation in the post George Floyd world. So right now, I like, you know, when I'm in Florida, and talking to these people, I would say to all of them, like, wait, you're supporting Donald Trump, not even Cubans, people from different backgrounds. You know, everyone tells me he's a racist. Do you not feel that way? They looked at me totally baffled. And I'd say, well, here is what he said. They're like, yeah, but that's what people say. That's how you run for office, right? And then you say that the whole thing's cooked and the whole thing is a lie and that they've stolen it from you and the media, blah, blah, blah. You don't think we've experienced this? This is the past sort of 50, 60, 70 years of Latin American politics fill in the country. I mean, the difference between Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela, Ecuador, too, is slight. I mean, the only country in Latin America that hasn't essentially had either, and by the way, it do, you don't have to have a Marxist revolutionary government that ruins your country. You can have a guerrilla move, right? This is like what you have in Colombia. You have FARC, things like that. So if you have people like the only country there that hasn't had this is Costa Rica. So all of these people are have experienced sort of guerrilla movements, you know, sort of fanaticism on one side or another. And so Donald Trump is, is perfectly in line with what you're not surprised by. It's people who live in New York City and, you know, who went to Brown and live in Brooklyn Heights who are surprised by the rhetoric, particularly when they say he's gonna they're gonna steal the election. Absolutely normal to people that I spoke to the past two weeks, they, they, they just bat an eye at it. But is that mm -hmm. something that we should be concerned about? Well, I mean, if you think back to 2000, right? You said hanging chads. It's kind of a quaint thing to listen to here now because it's actually, it's a physical thing, right? Chad hanging down. We don't know how to judge it. Did these old Jewish women vote for Pat Buchanan, who himself was voting for, you know, sort of SS guards at Treblinka? didn't make a hell of a lot of sense, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, the thing, the thing is like, this is, this is the kind of the idea of, of Florida. 2004, of course, you have the same thing. Go to Rolling Stone magazine, but it's smaller, right? It's not like a real issue. There's not the Brooks Brothers riot with Roger Stone's involved. There's not a court case, but people are challenging the election in 2004. They're challenging Ohio. Matt remembers this, right? Do you remember the, who wrote that? Was it Robert, Robert Kennedy Jr.? Who wrote that thing? In he did one, and then yeah. uh, and then guys name I'm blanking on, but he's been writing. Oh, uh, Greg Greg Palast. Uh, Greg Palast, the yeah. hat. 
Yeah, the hat, um, the jerk off. Yeah, you can always tell he's a serious journalist because he's got he's got a hat. Journalist yeah, hat and, and, and the, it, instead of saying press, it says I'm a fucking jerk off in his little thing in his hat, but it is hat band. But the thing about this is, is to point out not because this is fringe, they were fringe, they got some sort of mainstream purchase and currency, but it's going to happen every year. It does happen every year. Hillary Clinton did it last year, right? It was the Russians, the popular vote, they stole it from us. There's always the rhetoric of stealing elections. Now, hmm. coronavirus, I mean, now it's, you know, mainstream Democrats are thinking about this beforehand. When did Hillary Clinton say that? After the fact. After she lost, right? The Russians came in. You didn't yeah, notice beforehand, this she, Beforehand, it was all like working the refs on like, oh, you know, Trump is not going to accept the legitimacy of the election. Exactly right. right. That's going to be the yeah. problem. And, I, and yeah. I will always point out, and then I want to go to Camille on this one, I will always point out, and, and people tend to forget this, fake news. Was a Hillary Clinton talking point? Absolutely. Yeah. Every, like, mm-hmm. Trump's, That's right. Trump's like idiotic genius because he's the dumbest man alive, <laughs> but he mistakenly becomes smart when he's like, I'm going to take fake news and I'm going to take it as my own. And everyone who attacks me is fake news because the next four years, I'm Donald Trump and I won. The media hates me. It's going to be fake news. But the fake news thing was Hillary Clinton saying, uh, the, you know, the false consciousness thing, they lied about me and I lost as a result. It's amazing how how he took fake news and made it his own. I mean, go back to the etymology of fake news as a real issue, which is in a I way mean, Jesse, a sense of like fake, like you know, a, a f- faking election result. And Jesse uh, Walker wrote about it at the time uh, when it was gaining currency for those like three weeks on the left. Like, dudes, you're, you watch, just watch and wait. Oh, did it's he say that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Jesse, yeah it's Jesse, not going to end, end well for you. Jesse's a very smart guy in his conspiracy book, by the way. Very good. If yeah. you haven't read it, you should. Was it United States Conspiracy? It's uh, right over here. It's a good book. It's, it's, there's a couple of very good books on conspiracy. Jesse um, wrote one. United States Paranoia. 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 Very good. Great cover, yeah. too. Yeah. Matt just held the cover up. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we've, I to, we've really I been to sort of drinking. we we've been talking around we've been talking around this topic for for weeks now um if not longer sometimes on the podcast and sometimes you know off air when we're just kind of having conversations amongst ourselves and i know i've talked about it with other people um in different contexts and i mean it just it's it would be hard not to acknowledge the degree to which things like genuinely feel different. And I, I totally hear you Moynihan saying that, you know, this is normal in other contexts. There are other places that have to deal with this routinely. Um, sure. And, you know, to the extent there's, you know, been these questions about legitimacy, et cetera, you know, the, the difference now, of course, is that it really is happening on both sides. It's quite robust. And while, yeah. you know, we have yeah. an expectation that we've, we've seen these hanging chads before, we really are looking at a circumstance where you could be looking at this in like most states, potentially, certainly several like key swing states. Yeah. And you really won't have like results that you can look at and say, these are complete and these are final for weeks and weeks and weeks. And you do have a president who seems very likely in my, in my estimation to, to declare victory. And there isn't any sort of, you know, honest engagement between the two parties where they seem inclined to say, you know, these are the rules and we agree to them. 
And but I think let me ask point, you a question. Point Noonan makes in our piece is yeah. that this democracy is fundamentally about you know the peaceful transfer of power. Yeah. And to the extent no one believes in the legitimacy of the systems or the institutions or or the claims of the other side, like that that doesn't it doesn't suggest that things will go swimmingly. It, you yeah. know, in the best case, it's just a great deal more um, political rancor and greater, deeper divisiveness in our politics um, and more of these, you know, the, the kind of gimmickry um, and power games that that Matt was alluding to before. And to the extent the Democrats seize power, I mean, at this point, it's been suggested that whether or not the Republicans were to sort of proceed here, the likelihood that they do all of the things that Matt mentioned um, in, in order to, to sort of calcify their power once they have it or concretize it so that so, so that no one else can sort of interfere with them to disempower the minority i mean that all that is i think it's pretty major it's a pretty big deal and it, it, is. And it does suggest a situation where we'll see greater more radical change as opposed to the kind of gradualism that's been pretty typical of the american system but let me ask you a question camille and this is open obviously to you and matt is that um the one thing i've been thinking and i don't know the answer but is it is it going to be worse now? Right, this is going to happen regardless. Because as I pointed out, there's every you know election season, every election, there's going to be people. You know, either the people who lose, the party who loses, or fringe people who are you know affiliated with the party saying this was a stolen election, fake election, etc. Is it different now that we are in a post George Floyd in which you know? Cities across America have been convulsed by violence and convulsed by street protests that have been, in a lot of ways, you know, people in the mainstream media have been quite happy with. And, you know, we all know the CNN Chirons where somebody's standing in front of a burning oil derrick and it says peaceful protest <laughs> continues for second day. And, you know. There has been, we've been kind of glad handing a lot of this stuff, allowing people to, to say, well, it's a lot more peaceful than it actually is. When, we, when that's become so normalized, what happens every night in the news, you see this conflict, is, is the moment now slightly different if people take to the streets the day after the election, if there's no clear winner, and if Donald Trump and the Republican Party says, we won, um, I think, I mean, my instinct is that the protests are slightly different now because of how normalized they've become over the past six months. Am I totally crazy in thinking that? It's just kind of like been gnawing at me and I don't know if there's any truth to it or if I'm just being a paranoid weirdo. I don't think you're crazy to think that. I mean, that certainly seems to be the case. I mean, I, I do see the increasingly like calls for assertions that there will be violence or that there ought to be violence um, or that the violence that we've seen is somehow justifiable. Um, I, I can recall, um, it, I'm actually remembering uh, a conversation I had with a, a mutual friend of ours um, about their middle schooler, you know, being in class and um, hearing a teacher overhearing because, you know, in this particular area, the kid is not in a classroom. They're at home, you know, doing their studies behind a table and overhearing the teachers explain to the students that, you know, a, a protest or not a protest, but looting 
is what happens when, you know, people feel hurt or feel as though they've had something stolen from them and they, they take things and they break things because they feel bad. <laughs> and, you know, this is something that we can, we can talk about, you know? So yeah, the, the, the fact that folks are more willing to justify these things, that they're more willing to talk about it openly and that it is happening routinely, like does that I think that's a very real trend. Um, and I don't know that it's going away. Um, I also don't know that, that, you know, any of the recent developments have actually changed things and made it more or less likely that we're going to see more of this, um, sort of violence and political rancor and upset, um, in, in the coming weeks, you know, whether or not Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, died or whether or not there, you know, is, is sort of any other um, uncertain developments. It seems to me that it's only a matter of sort of when the next flare up happens, um, because mm. that is sort of where we are at this point. People have made that choice already. Um, and yeah. as we've talked about before, it's certainly not obvious that the, the if the Democrats are to win um, substantial power, that that'll be enough to quell all of the 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 sort of frustrations that have been built up already. And also we're, I think a quick caveat to this, I just want to caveat this quickly and then I'll go to Matt. Like, is that I don't want to say that it's the kind of lefty street protests that normalize the stuff and say, well, you know, because when Reza Aslan says, you know, to burn it down, people kind of blink um, and just move on because of the sort of, what, because of Portland, because of, you know, Seattle, Chaz, and Chop, and whatever, defund the police movement. It also, we also have to blame President Trump. Because, I mean, it's not as, I mean, when somebody's questioning legitimacy of institutions and questioning legitimacy of the results of the election, um, which he's, of course, preempting that too, is that it's not only the fault of these people that are taking to the streets and because it's normalizing violence, normalizing civil unrest that way. Republican Party and the Rep Republican Party of Donald Trump is very much the blame of these two. And um, I, I don't know how much weight I would give to one over another. I think it's a fool's errand to try to try to do that. But we talk to people who are out there with MAGA flags and MAGA hats and all this stuff. The level of, you know, sort of conspiracy that the world is out to get them and everyone's trying to steal the, 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 the sort of politics that should be normalized because MAGA <laughs> politics is real politics. And then there's just this sort of small element of people that live where I live. I mean, I got kicked out of a Donald Trump um, or, or a, a MAGA type event um, five days ago. And the person, when I went in, the person said to me, said, I can look at someone and tell, the, and tell if they, they agree with me or not. And I said, no, you can't. Because he was talking to me. Because he said, you know, look at you. You're clearly I mean, not one of us. True. And then but, the, the sort of I mean, security, isn't that true? Security. Well, I mean, I'm probably more. Re well, no, I'm more reactionary than that fool would ever be. Because he's not smart <laughs> enough to be reactionary. Um, but like, they're like, they're like circling me. And they ultimately push us out. But the, 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 the mindset of these people, which is like Q and QAnon stuff doesn't surprise me at all, 
Because after like years of the entire party being Glenn Beck, being the chalkboard with, you know, George Soros and the rest of it, is that everyone is out to get them. I, they won't even like talk into it. I'm like, I, when, when you're interviewing somebody, I say, you can only be made to look foolish if you say something. There's no way somebody could make me look foolish because I would never allow myself to say something could ever be even edited in a way. But these people are so paranoid. I mean, the, the sort of real hardcore Trump people that are out there stumping for him right now, many of whom I talked to in the past couple of days. But this sort of sense that the world is out to get them and would steal the election from them, are you know lying constantly about them, is, you know, it's complete. I mean, all of them say it's an incredibly pernicious idea that never is based on something. Like they can say this, they can say um, the Russia investigation. Well, no, it wasn't. It was overdrawn. It turned out not to be what, what all of those people from Adam Schiff on promised it would be, but it's not a hoax. A hoax means there's some sort of deliberation, some sort of, you know, malice of forethought. I mean, in, 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 you know, that would suggest that the, you know, Clinton investigations of the 1990s were a hoax too. Did it come out the way they wanted it to come out? Well, no. But this kind of mindset that everybody is at, get them. Now apply that and extrapolate that to an election in somebody who loses. Good God. It's not just the people of Portland that are big. Everyone and not just someone who loses, but someone who wins. Donald Everyone. Trump won. Hmm. Yeah. In 2016. Yes. And he said that there was fraud um, by illegal immigrant voters uh, somewhere between three and five million. Yeah. Think about how insane that is of a claim. That is really I mean, that's like Oliver Stone level conspiracy theorizing from the president of the United States, who then um, used that uh, idea to help uh, found a presidential commission on the integrity of elections, which um, he appointed wow. to be the head of uh, the person who is probably the most accom- uh, accomplished Chris Kobach? conspiracy theorist about elections <laughs> in the United States in which he's been serially um, mocked, shamed and punished by every court that he's argued in front of to try to make a claim about widespread illegal immigrant criminality and fraud in elections where like he was forced <laughs> to take remedial law school yeah. <laughs> or classes <laughs> because he argued so badly. His evidence was so shit. Um, uh, so this, uh, and that. Are you going to name and shame I mean, that's, this person? That's what I'm talking about. Um, uh, who like? Yeah. Okay. Uh, how sense. can you lose many elections in Kansas as a Republican? You've got to be special, um, and I mean that in the old-fashioned way of special. Um, so this is the president of the United States <laughs> making a completely um, untethered uh, claim, at which he has done. Um, in addition to more uh, uh, kind of factually based concerns about mail-in voting in this election, um, that's who he is. And and he's the president. He has access to information, um, which he uses and doesn't use. um, And he spins that out to his uh, avid fan base. And this is bad. This is deleterious 
to the functioning of a normal republic. And he does this on, on such a daily basis that we tune it out because it's boring. And like, frankly, we got to do other things in our lives. Um, but he still does it all the time, every day. Um, you know, Reza Aslan is really easy to make fun of because there's something so ridiculous about an impotent fool claiming to burn it all down and being the revolutionary. Um, Donald Trump has, I don't know, a military. He has cops. He has a lot of, of potential power at his fingertips. Those conspiracy theories that come out of his mouth mean a lot more to me. And I think it's really easy uh, in a world to be, uh, you know, think about the, the possibly transition or to put a button on it either way. Um, uh, uh, Hannah Nicole Jones has a- absolutely beclowned herself over the last 72 hours by a series of amazing denials that she ever said that the 1619 project was ever supposed to suggest that that was the true founding of America, unlike 1776, despite the fact, as Camille has pointed out on Twitter and Connor Friedersdorf and Phil Magnus, who's like a, the, you know, the Gila monster on the arm of Nicole Hannah Jones, um, <laughs> pointing out all of the different ways that she said that over and over again in interviews and on her own Twitter feed and all this kind of stuff. And they're, they're mm-hmm. like whitewashing. They're doing all this kind of stuff. Okay. All of that is terrible and awful and laughable. And it bolsters what we have been saying on this podcast for a long time, which is that a person who is way too intellectually shallow to shoulder the burdens that have been placed upon her by people giving her what she wants, right? You're going to, you're going to give her this, this form of the 1619 project. You're going to put it in schools. You're going to give her the Pulitzer, all this kind of stuff. She's not a very serious person. She's capable of some interesting journalism and argumentation, but she just hasn't figured out how to be a public intellectual yet. Maybe she will. I doubt it. It's kind of a little late to, to get started, but so she had a terrible, terrible week of be clowning herself yet. What is more important, that or that the president of the United States, someone who, who's spending my money, right? who's killing people in my name or whatever, or saving people, whatever, he's spending my money, um, decided that he wants to divert $5 billion from a forced sale of a fucking app, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that uh, the, that he intervened in in an industrial policy way that Republicans in any other era would have said, "Oh my God, I can't believe that the president yeah. has happened yeah. it's has, has acted in such a dictatorial way." He's he's <laughs> diverted or attempted to divert five billion dollars to start the seventeen seventy six project, which is which is fucking stolen from the Federalist it's, anyways, uh, and it's like federalist bad day federalist as opposed to federalist good day federalist although it's you know it's trolling or whatever so he's trolling with five billion dollars of absconded money from a forced sale of industrial policy bullshit i'm sorry that's worse than fucking nicole hannah jones because she ain't spending my money he's spending my fucking money he's the president he should fucking act better that is true and i can hear a lot about her and i'm happy to and i'll high five and connor and Phil and Camille have been rocking it and it's great and it's right. But let's not forget that he's spending our money doing this clownish, trollish fucking bullshit with billions of dollars over an app because the red Chinese had their fingerprints on it. For fuck's sake, the fever is not going to break until that shit's done. 
Uh, and so, and then also when the shit afterward that replaces it from the opposing team, which is also going to be fucking terrible, is also fucking done. Well, just quick fact check. On... By the way, do we know what what? No, TikTok... quick fact check on seventeen seventy six yeah. project. Yeah, go ahead. Um, that check. that is not the Federalist. Maybe the Federalist also has one, but that's Bob Woodson's it was the Woodson, thing, which which. Coleman Woodson. and uh, yeah. John McWhorter and I believe Glenn Lowry and a, no a no 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 the, the Federalists for sure I'm I'm I, I I will Google while you keep talking do they also know. have a 1776 project it, they, it, might have, they, might have, they might have done their uh, like column yeah. or something like that I okay think, I, I think our friend Ben came up with it but it's I mean, it's it's, fun, it's, it's but like it's uh, okay I mean look it's exactly the stupidity stupidity of our politics but when. You know, I've stopped using, <laughs> words, stop using words, phrases when, Don- yeah. when Donald Trump started using them. Like Donald Trump said, like, I will never like, you know, when he, he was a big thing on mm-hmm. politically correct. And the second that was part of the 2016 camp- campaign, I was like, I yeah. will never use those. Yeah, two he's words destroyed. In that he's destroyed again. cancel culture. And I, and I have because like he he destroyed cancel culture. And now the Nicole Hannah Jones thing, which. I'll tell you what, the, the, my read on Nicole Hannah Jones is quite simple. Actually. I've been, you know, I don't engage with her because there's no point in doing so. I have read all the 1619 stuff. I've read um, Phil Magnus's ebook, actually, which is quite good. Yes, he he and he gives her credit, by the way, particularly on the Lincoln stuff. Yeah. He, he has a whole seg- segment that said that they're actually right on Lincoln more so than mm-hmm. the average historian is, or the, the, the ones that she attacks in particular. Um, so yeah, like those guys, they're doing you know yeoman's work and actually. You know. But the thing that I've realized is that she's incredibly stupid, and I, I'm like totally honest. I'm just yeah, like, it's an insult. insult. I mean, it is an insult, but I don't mean that in the way <laughs> it is an insult. Clearly, but it's not one of those things that like I don't know what to say. I'm going to make fun of her appearance. Or I'm going to call her dumb. She is actually not very bright, as far as I can tell. And if she was like clever about this stuff and if she were a bright person i would imagine she would engage with her critics in an honest way and you know I, can you imagine like somebody like i don't know richard dawkins or something regardless of what you think about him saying that ah you know i don't want to debate these people about religion you can give richard dawkins like you know a bag of aquarium grub and he'll show up and debate you because that's what he does and he knows the subject very well Nicole Hannah Jones will debate nobody about this stuff. And when called out on Twitter about this stuff, is absolutely savaged by people, yet wins. She wins these debates because the people in this universe, those who would defend her, those at the Times, those in sort of bien pensant opinion, all line up behind her because now they have Donald Trump to say, like, oh, you know what I was talking about mm-hmm. was Donald Trump. I'm mad at what the president is saying. And like, yeah, but but the whole project, every time you t- push it a little bit, it falls apart. If this were actually a real thing, it would not be. If this were a real, let me say a real thing. If historians actually treated this seriously, were not blinded by politics themselves. I'm not saying that they're sort of pro 1619 or not. But if politics was not what motivated them, you would have a, a situation similar to 1995-1996, there was a book named Hitler's Willing Executioners by a historian, Harvard historian named Daniel Jonah Goldhagen. Now, Daniel Goldhagen won a series of prizes 
um, that were, you know, German historian prizes. Everyone went crazy for the book, won, won prizes in Germany. Everybody loved it. And then a bunch of historians got together and said, wait, this is absolutely wrong. This book sold piles and piles and piles. I wrote my, my senior dissertation on this. What happened? A bunch of historians got together and there are books about this. Literally books of essays about Daniel Goldhagen's thesis. Why is there no such thing? Why is Phil Magnus, who's a you know ideological sort of libertarian guy, but very smart, did a very good job with it? Why is nobody else attacking this? Why is it just the idiotic president, you know, siphoning off five billion dollars to make some sort of point about it? Why is that the conversation? Where are the historians? Because including mm-hmm. ones have, hired as right? fact checkers by you the know, New York Times. Yeah. Yes, I mean, well, exactly, and it's ignored. I mean, the Gordon Woods come out, the Sean Lenses come out. But if you are to say this, and I have had this happen to me, if you were to say, this is kind of BS, people immediately say, oh, you know, you're like one of those people. You're like attacking this. Because you don't want America's history to be corrected. You want this old 1950s version of history in which, you know, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were lovely people. And slavery was a fantastic institution. It was maybe aberrant in a few ways, but, you know, it wasn't that bad. Like, good God, this is the conversation I've had about this project. And then all of a sudden, the president sort of allows himself to have a little bit of oxygen about this and inserts himself in the debate. <laughs> yeah, and, and I would add before I uh, it's annoying. admit that, Camille, you're right. It's Bob Woodson thing, not the Federalist thing. Uh, mm-hmm. and sorry, Ben. Um, I uh, misunderstood that. That's not really before. And I think you actually insulted Ben. Yeah, I did not. No, I did not. You did. I, no, you I took insul- a shot at him. <laughs> you took a shot at him. You were wrong. I, I insulted Ben insulted for other him. reasons. You took a shot. Criminy. But uh, no, the insertion of Trump, the, the insertion of Trump into these debates uh, means that anyone who is operating good faith on the side that Trump intervenes on, uh-huh. and this is not his fault. I, I want to be clear about this, absolutely uh-huh. clear about this, means that the people who are, I would say, wrong, or at least on the other side of this debate, can say, aha, you're just being a Trumpy. Congratulations for abetting That's Donald right. Trump. No, it's um, true. I've, se- I've seen this in uh, definitely in New York City with the question of reopening schools, and I'm sure that a lot of people are experiencing this all around the country because unlike New York City, they're not even attempting to reopen schools half-heartedly and badly uh, as the way that New York is doing, even though New York yesterday, you know how many people died in the city of New York uh, or the state of New York, Camille, from coronavirus? Pop quiz. No, I don't. Tell me. One. One person died in New York yesterday, as far as we know, from corona. Huh. One person. Um, so from this, from, this from or huge... with? From or with coronavirus? Oh, you know, see, the so you and your you and your tech bros. Uh, but I, what I was <laughs> to to reiterate, Moynihan, what I was saying uh, while, while you're uh, refilling your drink um, is that the insertion of Trump into these arguments makes it really easy for people who are being lazy, yeah, but are on the other side of Trump on an argument to say, "Aha, yeah. see, you know, yeah. the, the real problem is Camille, and always has been." Um, yeah. And this this happens in school reopenings. This happens with the 1619 project. And my God, people go ahead and argue in the merits. 
let's yeah. pretend Trump doesn't exist. Pretend that he exists when he is exercising his power. That's what we should be paying attention to always. And, and we shouldn't be numb to that. As mentioned before, actually we should be alive to it, including the power to help kind of move the Overton window of, of what is considered to be acceptable in discourse. That's more downstream, but that's a thing and it's happening. Republicans are way more against trade than they used to be as part of that kind of downstream action. There's a, a downstream degradation of norms, but just because he might be on the, on the opposite side of a question about like, I don't know, due process about sexual assault cases on campus doesn't mean that you don't want to have due process about sexual assault cases on campus. Um, this, this kind of over-federalization and over-Trumpization and Washingtonization of everything <laughs> is just poison stupid. Like think for your goddamn self for once and don't think that you've won the argument just because Trump has belatedly weighed in against you, idiot. Well, let the, just, just to go in on the 1619 stuff a little bit here, I mean, the first issue is, and I, and I broadly agree with you, Matt, that once Donald Trump becomes the champion of you know the, the opposition to the 1619 Project, it does make life a lot more complicated and a little, a little, less, a little, less, a little less comfortable for, for people who've been making thoughtful and raising thoughtful objections to the project for some time. Um, but it's also the case that Nicole Hannah-Jones has basically been able to run the table with this project that for the most part, while there have been serious critiques leveled at her project, she's largely been able to avoid having to deal with these people in public apart from eventually grudgingly um, issuing these corrections. More recently, the New York times has astonishingly adopted the practice of stealth editing copy from the project, removing phrases that appear there that are inconsistent with the new position that they've adopted uh, where Nicole Hannah Jones says explicitly um, that she um, has never said that her project was uh, intended to, to, to actually, and, and I, I should, I should correct this because it's important. What, what she's actually doing here is a bit of misdirection. Um, and I'll read the tweet that she threw up earlier. Um, well, I guess it was late last week. Uh, one thing in which the right the political right, I should say. One thing in which the right has been tremendously successful is getting the media to frame stories in their language and through sure. their lens. The 1619 Project does not argue that 1619 is our true founding. We know that this nation marks its founding at 1776. Now, what's, what's amazing about that is that it's not as though there was ever any confusion. Everyone knows that she is aware of 1776. The fact is that as the banner on her Twitter profile indicates, as she herself has said on numerous occasions to anyone who would listen to her, um, that this project was explicitly trying to present a case to people um, that suggested that the actual founding date or year that should be considered at 1619, because while it's been ignored, Slavery ought to be at the center of our history, as the New York Times um, st 
piece, the feature itself, the, the, the opening artwork, the article that introduced the project, all of these things have said explicitly, and Nicole Hannah-Jones has repeated on numerous occasions, that everything exceptional about the United States is because of slavery. It is an absolutely ridiculous claim, not because there were never any slaves in the United States, but because slavery is an institution that is pretty ubiquitous throughout history around the world. It has existed in many, many places, in other places, in, the, in other parts of the Americas, as I've mentioned, and you may have heard me say, in greater quantity and for longer durations. And I don't know that you can say that what makes those places exceptional or remarkable in any respect is slavery. And you certainly can't say that about the United States. It simply doesn't, it simply doesn't wash. Um, but she also makes a number of other claims that are very dubious and that she's had to walk back that the, the, the war for independence was launched because the founders were interested in preserving slavery as something that could be, um, uh, that could be operated here in the United States or slavery as an institution in the United States. And that simply isn't true. It just is not it's a great deal of compelling evidence to support that. There's only bogus the evidence links from the whole one historian. Thing. Yeah. So, so there are, there are numerous things like this that exist and it is also not true to suggest that there isn't a concerted effort, at least on the part of Nicole Hannah Jones and the New York times to propagate this idea and to make it part of curriculums around the country and is the goal to denigrate the framers to denigrate the founding um to make it so that people won't be proud of their their national heritage i don't know i i, I don't know the goal is certainly to reframe the narrative um, of american history so that it is something that is generally um, more negative Primarily because in the one piece of evidence that I have seen her cite on numerous occasions is that there are a great many high school students or something like, you know, 15, less than 15% of high school students who know that the Civil War was fought to end slavery, which even if it's true, I don't know that that's indicative of a school system that's failing to talk about slavery or that's trying to whitewash American history. It might have a hell of a lot more to do with the fact that the school system is just kind of failing its students. I'd imagine that most of those students don't know that there are three branches of government or that our legislature is bicameral. They don't know a lot of things. Um, and whether or not they know that uh, is not terribly surprising to me. Um, and, and it seems to me that her project is unlikely to help remedy that uh, in terms of the, the quality or lack thereof of the education system. I, I will say I one mean, last thing about this national education program, um, this national patriotism curriculum that the president is talking about. One, I mean, it's nonsense. Like it's just a silly, ridiculous thing that, that doesn't actually exist and probably never will exist. Um, even the fund that's supposed to finance it from ByteDance, um, who's the owners, who are the owners of TikTok, at least the former owners, although that deal has not been approved by the Chinese. No. <laughs> so it the isn't at all clear Chinese. that the deal that the president was able to secure or finagle or whatever you want to call it, um, wherein Walmart and um, who is it? Oracle. Uh, Oracle um, are Oracle sort of well-known. Financer of, <laughs> of Republican high Party politics. performance yeah. apps. Well, yeah, okay, kind of. Um, but the the when I hear the 
reference to this national political education program, I can only think Hong Kong and the national education law that the Chinese government was interested in instituting. But there is a material difference between like the Chinese regime instituting a law that effectively is like a doorway for like sedition laws in which they'll be incarcerating someone and the Trump regime announcing what is in effect a fake program for purposes of sort of animating political concern. Um, And it is a little, it is a little extraordinary to see people on the left who are defending the 1619 project, suggesting that this is the Trump administration introducing Hitler-esque um education nationalist educational curricula into the school system um it 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 strikes me as a bit absurd um i think it's a stupid idea on the part of the trump administration that i am opposed to national educational standards for obvious reasonable for obvious reasons that that any sane person should grok um but i i do think most of the outrage about this is pretty absurd well, I think that any time that there is a uh, a national education standard, uh, Democrat or Republican, there's o- the opponents are always going to use hyperbolic language to describe it, and libertarians are going to be right in the middle of that hyperbolic language. I think the road to serfdom is the name of that book. The road to hmm. serfdom, yeah, um, hyperbole is kind of baked into the anti-authoritarian slash totalitarian project as much as i might personally be somewhat allergic to it especially when it's getting in specific circumstances but yes the point is that it's a bad idea to begin with don't do it stop doing it um in general one thing i would say just quickly about and this i i hope so much is the last time i ever even mentioned the 1619 project is if um rather than making the claim i'm going to you know our goal our fundamental goal is to reorient um you know the thinking of america's true founding which is that was the language um in the original if they had just come out and said you know what we're doing here we're trying to um kind of uh uh reorient the discussion of american exceptionalism to say that slavery was more of an important part of it than previously understood and that choices made at an early critical juncture shaped behavior legislation and society and governing structures going forward sure like so much of this would not have happened. I mean, like Phil Magnus, who's written a ton about this, um, basically has no active complaints over the vast majority of the stuff in the project. It's just right there in that little thing, especially the claim that it was fundamental to the anti-British revolutionaries um, that's, that, that we must mm-hmm. protect the institution of slavery. There's obviously overcooked that concept. Um, they could have done that then. They chose mm-hmm. not to, and they chose not to on purpose, kind of in the same way. And I, I don't want to spoil a future podcast, but one thing, one of the only things that I learned in listening to, as much as I've listened to Nice White Parents, the podcast in the New York Times that talks about um, uh, issues of race and the New York City public school system, including the school my oldest daughter goes to uh, now. Uh, or goes to that's funny uh, is affiliated with now from afar um uh is uh they there was the complaint that bill de blasio the 
absolutely idiotic mayor of this city who I'm glad to see in Moynihan's neighborhood, they had painted a whole block long fuck de Blasio and fuck Cuomo uh, mural on the ground there uh, over the weekend, which is just awesome. Um, but de Blasio, they complained at the time, didn't use the words segregation to describe mm. the New York City pol- uh, school system for five years. That turns out to be wrong. He didn't use it for the first four, maybe three and a half years, but he eventually used it. But there's a reason why you go for the bold claim. Like, if you can degrade the language, mm-hmm. if you could claim that what's happening in New York right now through no diktat of law, although there's laws that are kind of piled into specifically the residential zoning of schools, um, you know, some of that's related to redlining and some really crappy stuff that happened in the past. But no one is being forcibly removed from a school because of their race. That doesn't exist mm-hmm. in New York yet. We must have this described as segregation. And if you don't, then that must be terrible. Well, why was that such a focus for all that time? Because once he finally said that, then you can get the other stuff. Then you can get the policy aims that you want. You, you've won the degradation of language. Then you've won a lot of the fight. And I wonder how much of the 1619 project and its bold, audacious claims at the beginning, in the lead paragraph, in the selling material, in the tweets, in the Twitter head form where you crossed out 1776, just Mm -hmm. to make it clear, um, is in service (laughs) of that. It isn't like, oh, you know, people are calling me on the right or calling me out because they're like nitpicking. No, actually, they're accurately pointing out you were trying to absolutely step with this language um uh uh like uh 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 exaltation um uh and um and the new york times got at least uncomfortable enough to edit it post facto without telling anybody which is Mm -hmm. totally disgraceful but also super hilarious but but i think what's more disgraceful than the new york times doing doing what what we've already alluded to with the stealth editing is the fact that no one is willing to ask questions about it. Um, every time I've seen prominent journalists either engaging with Nicole Hannah Jones and by engaging with, I mean, essentially apologizing to her on, on behalf of like the country for the awful circumstance she finds herself in um, where the president of the United States is talking about her work publicly um, and essentially condemning it and criticizing her you know, they're defending so bad for her they're defending the project they're referring by to Trump. this it must hurt you know, yeah they're referring to this explicitly as you know this oh, piece of of quality journalism they'll they'll mention the fact that she won a pulitzer what they don't mention is the corrections what they don't mention um is, is the fact that this this is a a piece of political propaganda in some important respects i mean this is a project that argues explicitly um that takes swipes at capitalism um, and that argues sort of proactively for um, universal health care, essentially asserting that we don't have universal health care because of slavery. That's a real thing that's in there. Um, and of course, um, that leads one to argue for another policy position, which is reparations. And it is difficult to say that these policy positions aren't generally consistent with the goals um, and objectives of progressives broadly or the left in general. Um, and it, it, I think it, it, 
it's important to be honest about this and to recognize kind of the nature of the, the trends um, in, in media coverage and the fact that people just, again, not really being serious um, when they cover this as, you know, this, this work of journalism that is just, you know, honest and pure. And, and to be clear about standard uh, about historical this. narrative that we, we just can't be, there's no reason to impugn this. The reason the president doesn't like this. Like I heard, I heard Nicole Hannah Jones say this today um, when I watched a clip of her talking to Brian Stelter that the reason people are critical of this project is, you know, essentially because of racial resentment, because of racism, because they have a problem with people talking about slavery as if they talk about it too much and people just need to get over slavery. Um, and it's just, I, I, who are those people? Where are they? even the president in his prepared remarks doesn't make that claim. Where are they? And Brian, a guy who's been on this podcast before, didn't push back against that at all. Um, and I think it's 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 embarrassing. It's not as though he doesn't know that there are people like me who are critical of the project. You know, I think that I think that to portray as a media story. Um, the pushback uh, against the 1619 project to be an artifact of knuckle dragging Trumpism or just sort of of Trump himself um, is missing a hell of a good media story. The hell of a good media story is um, the accomplishment of the project, but also the way that it was allowed to be that accomplished while having these obvious evident flaws in it that were pointed out um, by people at the time. And it wasn't in everything. Weirdly, the animus against, you know, black people or talking about slavery was limited to only really a couple of pieces and maybe some of the overall framing in the project. That's odd. Um, uh, but like to portray that as, as uh, just a Trump story, is missing a hell of a good media story. Yes, right. there is a Trump story. And as I mentioned it, that Trump story means actually more to me than the New York Times story because Trump holds power over me that the New York Times does not and cannot and will not ever. Um, so yes, I get that. But if we're talking about media and we talk about media, mm -hmm. <laughs> and if that's the subject <laughs> of your journalism, talking about media, um, they disappeared some quotes. They changed things without letting people know. And in the face of criticism, they acted like dicks mm -hmm. for a year now. Mm -hmm. It's been mm -hmm. absolutely mm -hmm. acting like dicks. You know what happens when I get uh, 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 confronted by people saying, you screwed this up? What do I say? Do I say, oh, that's just because you are X? No. I look. I see if I screwed up. And if I say, if I find out that I screwed up, I feel terrible. Mm -hmm. And I say, regardless of how much that person hates me or comes from a, a point of view that I disagree with, I say, thank you. I have corrected it. That is what mm -hmm. you do. That is exactly what you do immediately. Even if the people that you're talking with, and this happened to me on a story that I wrote a year ago that meant a lot to me. And I made, I misattributed quotes to somebody in a public meeting um, that uh, were, were, to somebody else and like you say thank you sir can i have 
as much as you can. Can you make sure that I didn't make more mistakes? And I'm very, very sorry. And I will correct it immediately. That's what you do. That is the yeah. role of a public intellectual and certainly a journalist. Um, and the fact that that has not been at all through like seriously a hundred different cases, um, the behavior of someone at the center of all this adulation and praise and platforms, that's a pretty good media story. And it's worth covering in your um, journalism journalism. Yeah. Uh, well, let's get the hell out of here. It's been a little bit and Still. my hand is gone and my computer is making a loud noise. I got to figure out. What I just want to say, on. you bastards, what happens when you leave Brooklyn out of cowardice I, I'm in is that your tech. Exactly. You're in Manhattan. Manhattan sucks. Uh-huh. When you leave Brooklyn <laughs> from our enclave, which is not Midtown Manhattan. Midtown Manhattan doesn't exist anymore. Our enclave That's is in Brooklyn true. and you two bastards fled like rats in the night <laughs> and i am still here and my tech is great and who would I mean, have ever ever thought amongst you you like started like a software company when you were 12 moynihan <laughs> and like jerry rig you know entire defcon 7 situations and uh-huh. yet and yet yeah. it's yeah. you with the mic problem last night now moynihan's in his whatever like you know Hampton's house like oh, I don't know where my phone is anymore <laughs> screw you people Brooklyn wins I win you all lose bye bye we, we, we know of new methods of attack the Trojan horse the fifth column